This is Making It Up, a weekly cultured news podcast focused on analyzing and debating anything that comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is a bit of light catch up and then two main items of news, one chosen by Eugene and one by myself. We pick our topics from the Macon Briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and analysis on culture. On Making It Up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to work our way to some sort of conclusion, often working through thoughts and challenges along the way. If you do do one thing and one thing only regarding this podcast, and obviously you're a fan, please pass this along to one of your more intelligent friends who care more about creative culture than just the latest drops and what celebrity was wearing yesterday. I know I said I wasn't going to talk about school, but I'm going to say one thing about school anyway. So you know how I've been doing this group project this term? All right. This is your chance to sound off on who's the one that's not pulling their weight. Nope. That's not what I'm here for. Definitely not because they might listen to this podcast. So I was talking about the nature of group work with a friend who doesn't go to my school. And she actually said a really interesting thing. She linked it to how people in workplaces talk about diversity and inclusion. Because in order for group work to really be successful, everyone has to commit to that discomfort. And that is exactly like the academic experience. You have to all commit to being uncomfortable with each other and spending a lot of time just figuring out what the best language to use is. Got it. And do you feel as though the people in this program are more open to criticism and to being challenged in regards to their opinion? Yes and no. Yes, I think by opting into this program, you've already shown your natural inclination towards wanting to have criticism and be challenged because I'm in a multidisciplinary program and it's an MA level, right? So that's already self-selecting a certain group of people. But no, because our human tendencies is to gravitate towards what's comfortable and what's familiar. So it is really hard because in our settings, you're actually with people who can be very different from yourself, probably more so different than in a workplace. Mm -hmm. In a workplace, maybe the hiring manager kind of hires people that are somewhat similar, whether that's good or bad. I think that's like kind of the case. But in this academic setting, you know, the people who do admissions, they don't have that priority. Actually, they are prioritizing that discomfort, that challenge. They're looking more intensely for a variety. And so Mm -hmm. the ways in which people, I've seen them behave, I wouldn't say it's because we don't want to work together, but because it is so much work. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of effort. Obviously, this further reinforces the fact that school and the real world are quite different. Mm, I actually would say that the school environment is like an experiment for what could happen in workplaces, at least for my program, where people are quite different from each other. And that is kind of what I think the goal is in certain workplaces are. I mean, we've talked about this before about how you need to have dissenting opinions. So do you want me to share with you my revelational moment of the last few days? Yes. So I had to dog sit by myself. And the reason I say by myself is because I've never had a dog before. So this is the first well, time. Also because Nicole is I out of town, you mean? Yes. Yeah. So I had to personally dog sit. And I realized that... Did the dog die? No. Whoa, whoa. Where did that come from? Just jumping in there. I just wanted to double check. I didn't want this to turn really dark. No, but I also realized that dogs are not my thing. (laughs) 
Like I quickly grew tired of the experience of having to take care of a dog. But I was also thinking like, will this mean that if I ever have kids or when I have kids, will I have the same feeling? I was thinking, <laughs> no, I think it's different. The reason why there's a there's a very definitive ceiling on what you can teach a dog, oh right? Oh my goodness. Like, but you have a much larger impact on a human being or a baby. You know, all the little quirks and things that a dog might have, like you can't really push them to undo those quirks. I don't know where to begin responding to you on this subject. <laughs> because we're going to get some angry like, no, fan mail. I don't that. think we're going to get any angry fan I think it's funny because your entire perspective is based off of teaching the dog slash your kid. And there's more to a relationship than trying to teach them to not do things or to do other things. Yeah. I've interacted with this dog for the last two or three months and it's only six months old, right? Yeah. So you've kind of seen it grow up and how it interacts. What is interesting is that there are certain things that it used to do that it doesn't do now mm -hmm. and vice versa. Like right now, it barks a lot. and Before, it didn't bark very much. But there's this one thing where if you try to walk it, it won't let itself be walked. It'll like basically fight and try to go in the opposite direction. And I was like, why? <laughs> Will it always be like this? It right? won't. Oh, no, no, no. That's not true. Dogs don't always have to exhibit the same behavior. Oh. I mean, I don't think you're inclined to do this, but dogs can also be understood from their perspective. There's probably a reason why it's barking or a reason why it wants to walk in the other direction. Yes. It's just that but it's harder to find is, out from the dog because the dog doesn't speak our language. No, I get that part. But then <laughs> you're basically... Keeping a dog for companionship, right? Yes. Like beyond it, all the inconveniences is really just for companionship. Yes. Well, Got I it. mean, I would. That's why I would have a dog. The takeaway is that I don't need companionship in the form of a dog. Good takeaway. Hence why I don't want to put up with this. Yeah, of that I don't stuff. think the reasons to have a dog and a kid are the same thing. So you keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, you're right. What stories did we do this week? We published a recap of UCC which we don't really need to talk about because the recap consists partially of episode 69 of this podcast. And then we published a long form piece on Summerland, which is a long audio interview between Alex Mayland and Liam Kazmar, the founder of Summerland, which makes these really beautiful ceramic bongs. And that was a long time coming. I think what's interesting to me in that piece is actually where Alex and Liam talk about their personal struggles balancing business and creative. And yeah. we've mentioned this before, but Alex's approach in an interview is different from you and me. I mean, all three of us are different. Every interviewer is different, but Alex tends to put more of himself into it. And I yeah. don't know if this is interesting to other people who don't know Alex, but for me, that insertion is interesting. Why is that? I think it makes both people in the conversation vulnerable and it makes the conversation more intimate. And not every interview subject probably should be approached in that same way, but it works in this case. And it works usually when Alex does it with the people that he wants to speak to. I definitely agree. I think that's why some of his past stories have been so well received, like the Chinatown one with Mike Sherman. Yeah. Like those are the ones that people I think really sort of find themselves deep in the conversation as though they're really there with two good friends. Yeah, or Philip Lim. Yeah, yeah. That one as well. 
And then just recently, the beginning of this week, we published the third in our Making Classroom series, which excitingly, we have been getting a lot of feedback is being valuable and is really encouraging other people to make their own thing. Yeah. So the guide we created is not the first nor the last guide on how to do some sort of audio production. Mm -hmm. But what is the importance in someone thinking to themselves, hey, oh, someone has already done it, but I should still do one too. Like, how do you think people should approach that rather than get hung up in the fact, oh, it's already been done? Well, one thing is we've talked about this. We can't guarantee that people have seen things. Not all people consume material in the same way. So someone who listens to us might not be someone who listens to NPR, who does a great audio guide. And so if their point of entry is making, then they would already have this base in which they want to get this material from us as opposed to NPR, even if somehow objectively the NPR one is better. Mm -hmm. If someone's access is through us, then it makes sense that they would want to hear from us. My takeaway from it is that one, yeah, I agree. Not everyone sees everything. Two, you might introduce something to somebody who didn't know what something they could try out. You know, it's kind of like putting someone onto something new. And the third one is you might actually know your audience better, right? So like the NPR thing might be more of a catch-all, more general, but the way we communicate and talk, introduce an idea through imagery might be better received. Yeah, and also, I mean, huge shout out to Nate for doing all the work on making classroom. I think being able to articulate these kinds of things for ourselves is really good for us as a learning exercise. I know what I learned the best when I'm able to share it with someone else and they understand it. Yeah. Topic number one, Forbes' 30 under 30 is giving me an anxiety spike. So I asked an Envy expert to explain. So this is a Slate article that highlights the Forbes 30 under 30 list and what sort of impact it has on people, especially since if you're someone that's either in or outside of that bracket, you're often left contemplating what is happening with my life. For those unfamiliar, the 30 under 30 list is a designation and award for those who you could say are on the better side of father time in the sense that they have created some sort of impact in the world. Categories include law and policy, marketing and advertising, science, sport, education, entertainment, and more. It's actually not that old, this list, which is interesting. It only launched in 2011. So I'm curious why it never existed before that, because obviously you've always had entrepreneurs under the age of 30 and people that are doing things. I mean, there are other lists like the time person of the year issue. Yeah. And then most publications do kind of an annual roundup of like people to watch. I think you're going to get into this, but the reason why Forbes 30 under 30 has kind of like caught people's imagination is because of the under 30 constraint. Yes. So Slate spoke with Sarah Hill of Texas Christian University on the topic of envy and how it differs from jealousy. And she said, when it's about Coveting what someone else has that one lacks, it's envy. Whereas jealousy more precisely denotes the emotion that comes from a perceived threat in a romantic relationship or friendship. Also, envy might be an evolutionary trait for us to step up and not get left behind. So it's kind of telling yourself, hey, you know what? People around you are doing this. Now 
it's time to get your ass in gear and hopefully step up to the plate. Do you ever think about whether you inspire envy in other people? Mm, I mean, depends. If people see you as being successful, like, but you can't really control someone else's emotions. Do you think about the way you talk about your work to different people in that context of I think that not wanting general, to inspire envy or wanting to inspire envy? Well, let me ask you this. If you downplay your work, does that inspire envy or does that mitigate envy? So for example, if I look at what I've done and I downplay all the work I've done as being inconsequential, whereas other people think it's something worthwhile, what effect does that have? I see what you mean now. You mean if I do something and then I downplay it to a person, that could work inversely. It could... Well, I don't know what the outcome is. So like, let's say, hey, you just won an award for the best... Let's say hypothetically, no, let's say hypothetically, I make 30 under 30 list because I can still potentially do that. Time's running out, but yes, you can. Yeah, time is running out. Technically, I still could. (laughs) Okay, so let's say I make it. Then when I talk about it, do I say, ah, whatever, like that's not a big deal. You're right. I think about it. I think about how do I present my work, not to people that are work-related, but like to my peers, because I don't want there to be envy in my peer circles. So that's the case then. If you downplay your work, then you think people will also downplay the achievement. I don't know. Can we circle back to me and my feelings on envy? Let's keep talking about 30 under 30. If I was to circle back even further, I was going to finish my quote and then we could jump into it. Okay, go for it. So the last quote I wanted to add was, Sarah Hill said, there's a lot of things that are unpleasant that are that way for a reason, usually because we're trying to tell our brain to pay attention to something. In the case of envy, our research suggests that envy might play an important role in alerting ourselves to the fact that somebody is doing better than we are in a domain that's important to us. When envy is working as it should, in other words, it may be a signal that we need to step it up. Do you believe that? I think so. I think that if you feel envy and it's kind of this gut reaction, it's kind of, you know, pushing you to think, oh man, like, hey, I need to, I need to do something, which is true. Cause what's important is that the role it plays when it's in a domain that's important to us. So like if there's a 22 year old figure skater and you don't even give a shit about figure skating, like that means nothing. But if it's someone in the realm of design or podcasting, then you're suddenly thinking twice, right? It's also a matter of like, hey, well, If they can do it, I can do it. But generally speaking, you have to understand there's obviously a lot of factors that go into someone's success beyond just talent, hard work, luck, etc. Do you feel envious when you look at the 30 under 30 list? No, I don't even look at it. But I also think that now I recognize that the challenge that comes with putting something together and it's not to self-handicap myself, but I look at it from the perspective, am I genuinely satisfied with my work and am I trying to do the things that I feel passionate about. If that's a yes, that's that's one point. And then secondly, it's that there are certain things down the line that, you know, I wasn't privy to or I didn't have something work out in my favor, whereas other things did. So you just have to look at it from a more rounded perspective and just zoom out. But I think ultimately for me, I do think about certain things because the one thing I've kind of been hung up on recently is that there are certain things in your life that have a timeline where once they cross a certain threshold, like your ability to participate changes drastically. What are you thinking of? Are you thinking of sports? Well, travel. 
Oh, you think no, of- well, sports naturally. I don't really care because I'm not going to go and be a professional athlete. But when it comes to travel, as you get older, you have more responsibilities. You might start a family. Might have <laughs> really got a theme going know, really- on this episode. Yeah, not not that I'm trying to start a family or anything, but it's just at some point in time, you do have more responsibilities and you can't just go and travel. So I think that's one thing I think about a lot. Okay, I have two responses. One is judging by your metrics of your personal satisfaction, there is no reason to ever feel envious because it's based off of your own situation and your own success to date, right? So if it's, if it's yeah. you looking at you, then they're shouldn't be a situation where you look at someone else and then feel envious of them. So so that's my first remark to what you said. And then the second remark in terms of travel, it's interesting that we're kind of going into, are there real constraints on our time when it comes to certain things? And I don't know if I agree with the travel one. I would definitely agree with sports because that's how the human body ages. It's not possible to fight that really. But travel, it's based off of your decisions because people can age and have fewer responsibilities. It's really dependent on their life situation. Yeah, of course. I mean, maybe as you get older too, you have the chance to travel more. Yeah, yeah. But I guess in general, I look at it and I think that it's generally something you agree upon. Like when you start a family, you travel less. Right, but not everyone starts a family. Yeah, of course. I understand that this is your own personal view on like a timeline constraint, but... It is definitely one that's relevant to you and people who make choices like yours, whereas something like athletics is relevant to everyone across the board. But 30 under 30 is also relevant to everyone across the board because of this like arbitrary number that Forbes has set based off of your age. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about this is that generally speaking, we probably endure envy on a microscopic level, like just going on Instagram, for example. Yeah. But- I'm curious what it means when you have a respected outside validator as well. Like, does it compound? What is the reaction to seeing someone on a Forbes 30 under 30 versus seeing somebody that you're envious on a social media post from their own account? For me personally, I think the 30 under 30 list is useful in terms of keeping up to date with what's happening. It's actually not just 30 people, right? It's 30 people in each of these sectors. So it's a lot of people that they've picked. And I don't immediately think, okay, everyone is at this like really established point of success, but these are people who might be doing something interesting right now. And then it's useful to look at what is coming up. That's Mm -hmm. like how I view it. Yeah. I mean, the general sentiment around this list too has been that it doesn't guarantee anything, right? No, yeah. I don't really think we have to beat this over people's heads, but I think people understand, right, that age is not really a good metric for success. I disagree because if that was the case, we wouldn't be talking about this article. But can't we be talking about it because we disagree with the structure of it? Mm, We can, but I think that the general sentiment is that, hey, people feel as though there's a sense of, hey, you know what? This is an equalizer in a way. It's, it's something quantifiable. You don't look at someone on the surface and be like, hey, you know what? Okay, you went to that school. Your parents do this and that. It's like age is kind of this very immediate element of positioning. I think what I mean is that I don't think it's valuable 
because of the way it glorifies youth. I think it can cause a unhealthy pressure on success when you're young and also it detracts from work that's done when you're older. How come we don't celebrate people who are over a certain age? I think that there is a tendency, like a historical tendency in Western culture is to disregard the elderly. And I think 30 under 30 contributes to that. Oh yeah, that's true. I think Hong Kong is actually a place where we could do better. I'm not saying Hong Kong is great, but I think Hong Kong does do a better job than London, where I am right now in terms of respect for elderly. And yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that 30 under 30 is intentionally doing this, like definitely not like Forbes is not set out to like disrespect older people. But I think that it is part of that culture where we don't take care of the older generation as much as we should. Yeah. But ultimately, do you think that people have the capability of controlling their emotions? So when that feeling of envy kicks in, they can understand it and suppress it? And should you suppress it? Mm, Good question. Technically, I'm a professional at asking questions. (laughs) Like it's legitimately my job. I think that if you can identify envy as a motivator for yourself, then you don't have to suppress it. But if you see envy as something that paralyzes you or stops you from pursuing what you want to try, then don't engage in whatever it is that inspires envy, which is very self-help sounding, but like that's to answer your question. I'm satisfied with that. Should we move on? Yes, let's do it. So my subject for today is really a subject that you've been sort of convincing me to talk about for the last week. One morning I woke up. Yep. One morning I woke up to like three links from you on the subject of NASA. And it was just like, and also colon, link, link, link. So the subject is human computers, the woman of NASA. And this is not new news, especially since the movie Hidden Figures came out and people all across the world were talking about the history of women in NASA and how that has led to where we are today. The reason we are talking about it- Oh, wait, wait, wait. So this is actually a well-known phenomenon and I just was living in a bubble and didn't know about it. I mean- Wait, you uh, don't know about the movie Hidden Figures? I don't know about any movies. Oh my gosh. But anyways, I can explain why. No, I no, found no. The I can also explain why. I can explain why. Don't worry about it. I'm getting there. But first of all, let me tell you that Hidden Figures is a movie that came out in 2016, grossed 236 million worldwide, was nominated for many awards, including several Oscar nominations, and featured the story of three African American women working in the Langley Research Center. Catherine Goebel, Mary Jackson, and Dorothy Vaughan. So that's to update you on pop culture news that is now two years old. Damn. I'm not embarrassed. Whatever. Everybody who listens to this podcast regularly already knows this about you. So it's fine. The reason we are talking about it today is because there's a whole bunch of NASA-inspired collections and products done in collaboration with NASA. Um, Can I stop you there? I think that the 
in collaboration part is a little bit misleading, uncertain. Yes. Okay. You can basically utilize the NASA logo. And by doing so, all you need to do is get their approval. Yes. Yes. And you don't have to pay any royalties. Okay. So maybe a better way to just say that is throughout time, there have been lots of products with NASA logos on it. And actually like those t-shirts with NASA logos are still really trendy. But to make it contemporary, like relevant right now, some things that came out, Annie Korn, a independent watch brand made a really limited edition, 60 pieces only watch that was based off of the full pressure suit called the Advanced Crew Escape Suit. Also Mercer Amsterdam made two sneakers inspired by different NASA missions, the Apollo 11 and the Apollo 17. And those were released in August and then fall. So that kind of brings it up to date. And Vans is a big one too. It's inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. It's not really about whether or not you're up to date on- Lots of fashion products revolving around NASA. And like you said, the NASA logo is kind of up for grabs if you can just get their approval, which it seems like they give it quite freely. Yeah. The interesting thing is that NASA, the logo and the branding and everything revolving around it already carries with it so much meaning. So it's kind of a shortcut to create a product that ostensibly has meaning by linking it to NASA. And it's just weird. I think ultimately for me, the thing that has been the most glaring, and this is not to politicize anything around NASA as, a, as an agency, I guess. It's really about what role it plays in the exploration of space and whatnot, and the role of discovery and science, despite all these massive pop culture influences that are kind of like entering the space and trying to utilize the logo without any sort of kickback. And not even any sort of like consideration of how they could help further continue this agency is, I think, incredibly short-sighted. And honestly, it's a bit of a turnoff. And I guess this is where we segment into what we wanted to really talk about and why we wanted to link this to something bigger is that, as you know, like STEM, that sector of education has traditionally not been as welcoming to females and women. Yeah. So... Why not find a way to provide some real value to that part? Obviously, the story itself that you've been talking about was the role that women and women of color played in helping NASA during what are arguably some of the more historical moments within its history. Yeah, let me give some background on that so that everyone is on the same page. Barbara Canwright joined California's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in 1939, and she was the first female quote, human computer, meaning that she did calculations on rockets, propellants, performance of engines, everything to do with NASA by hand on paper. And then a woman named Macy Roberts was hired. She was older and was in a supervisor position. And this was like back in the 40s. And she made this decision that's really significant and has, you know, led to things that we still think about. And she decided she would only hire women because she was a female supervisor. She, in that period of time, it was even more important that women help each other out in the workplace and that women could provide each other with the kind of support that perhaps having a male team members wouldn't do. P- please keep in mind, this is like 80 years ago. So I understand why it would be even more important then. And then when you're talking about historical moments, so these Women at NASA also became the first computer programmers because NASA thought that 
computer programming was women's work, which is so interesting to see how like the notion of STEM has changed. And they also were kind of the first people to come up with maternity leave. This was in the article as well. This supervisor named Helen Ling, apparently you basically had to let female employees go if they were going to give birth. But this supervisor decided, if you go and give birth, I will just rehire you. So you don't get paid while you're gone, but essentially you can return to your job. At least you still have a job. Yeah. And I know that I sound basically like a Wikipedia page, but I do think there are so many individual figures that are remarkable to consider the kinds of obstacles that they went through to get where they are. I do think that somehow NASA, I don't know what's going on internally, but in the 40s and 50s, like they were doing really good stuff, not just scientifically, but also in terms of these sort of social issues, hiring women, hiring women of color, giving them significant contributing roles. So I agree. I think if not NASA, the agency specifically, if you're going to pull on that history, then you should be able to foster that same culture forwards. I mean, for me personally, that's one thing I've found interesting because, yeah, we talked about this a few months ago, I think, with Wikipedia and the brand advisory board crystals. Yeah. So it makes me wonder, like, do you think that inherently some of these agencies or companies that think they're doing the public a service are leaving themselves up for exposure and to be taken advantage of? I think the service that's done by having NASA used on hype products is that it keeps NASA in the popular imagination and it keeps them as relevant in a way to use, but it doesn't serve a bigger goal of then enabling young people to get into those fields. Uh, and I would argue it's an incredible stretch to think someone's going to pick up a pair of sneakers with a NASA logo and all of a sudden be inspired to go and enter some sort of space program. Well, I don't mean on an individual level, but I do think that if we stopped seeing the NASA logo on footwear and watches and materials, then we would just stop thinking about space exploration in a way. Mm, but on the topic of space leap. exploration, it's actually contentious. That's why when you first brought up this subject up with me, I didn't say I want to give proceeds to NASA. I said that I would give it to girls in STEM or groups that work with yeah. fostering girls in STEM. Because space exploration specifically right now, this is a very subjective view, but probably shouldn't be our priority. Because we can't even handle our own shit on this planet. Exactly. Like yeah. the earth is going down a route that we've set for ourselves that doesn't look good. I disagree with the amount of spending that goes into space exploration. Mm. Fair. Like I looked this up just to add this number. As of 2011, the average cost to launch a space shuttle is $450 million per mission. Well, that's a lot, but that's everything up until that point. Yes, it is a lot of money. Nobody is going to go out and say that's not a lot of money. I think that that money could be put to different uses that still serve that NASA larger idea of 
innovating in engineering and science and math, but isn't involved with space necessarily. Anything else to add? Also, just in case anyone doesn't know, STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. Yeah, I'm glad you said it because I wasn't about to try to remember what they all represented. Cool. I think that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you're interested in learning more about Macon and reading and listening to our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. And if you like this podcast, do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. As Eugene said, just the intelligent friends though. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Charisse at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, and Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing your feedback. I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>